Hey, this is Glenn with another episode of Difficult Questions. This one is on experts. Specifically, what exactly makes someone an expert? Now, this is the on the back of all the, the virology stuff and all of the alternatives to the COVID solution and all the COVID madness and all the infighting and all of the outfighting and all of the calling people not experts and other people calling people experts. And specifically, obviously, this whole thing with virus versus alternative cares. But I want to go past science. We'll definitely delve into science. We won't talk too much about specifically COVID. <clears throat> but I want to I want to talk about who experts are, and then not only in the scientific field, but outside of the scientific field. And as usual, we'll use my life as an example. So firstly, I, I, let's start with science, right? Well, who is an expert? I was listening to a cardiologist and he was saying, an expert wants, needs to be warm and competent and have public trust. So obviously if you have a title given by some public entity, you somewhat have some public trust. And if you don't, well, that knocks down your trust. But I wanna go into that because let's say, let's start with general practitioners. Let's start, start, let's start with your family doctor. Let's start with my family doctor. Let's start with my medical history. So I grew up in Sacramento and uh, it's known to be a, an allergy capital. A lot of people are allergic to a lot of different things in Sacramento. My grandfather was very allergic to a lot of things and it really hurt his health. So my mother thinking that she would be proactive on getting on onto this, this solution for allergies started us with an immunologist, an allergist, early on in our lives. And we were getting allergy shots when we were young, um, all the way, when I was young, all the way through to, um, to when I was 18. But I always felt sickly. I never felt good. I never felt strong. I never felt healthy. And so I had all this, I didn't necessarily feel that I had allergies and I was getting all these allergy shots, but I just didn't feel right. Plus I had this, this chronic thing that would happen. I would get sick and then that would turn into a sinus infection. And so two or three times, two or three times a year, I would get a sinus infection and then I would get on antibiotics. And I knew then that antibiotics weren't good if you constantly were on them. And some of them were so strong, they really messed up my body. So I hated taking them. And I remember going to my, my family physician and saying, I, we need to solve this. I can't just constantly go, go, con go into these sinus infections. And I remember I brought him a vial of my mucus. And I said, well, what, 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 did, what, what does this color mean? Because I'd heard if it was green, it was certain, it was something, and if it was yellow, it was something. And he remember, I, he was shocked that I would bring him a vial of my mucus. 
And he just looked at me and he said, medicine is a practice. I don't know. And at 18 or 19, I think it was maybe 17, that blew my mind because the person we expect to lead us was telling me, I don't know. And I think that we expect doctors to have the answer. And because we expect doctors to have the answer, they expect that they should have the answer. And sometimes they just don't have the answer. So finally, after browbeating my, my physician, he gave me a referral. I, I said, what, what do we do? I can't accept this, that there is no answer. And he finally gave me a referral to an ear, nose, and throat doctor. And she took an x-ray of my nose and my septum was really uh, truncated. And so she thought, well, that she saw that the infection was never getting cleared out. It was hiding behind some of, some of my sinuses. So I had surgery, sinus surgery, and it changed my life. That with me turning 18 and no longer having to go get allergy shots. I felt like an absolute new person. This whole time, the experts were telling me this is what I needed to do, and it was making me feel miserable. Now, does that happen to everybody? No. But experts, I've learned no stuff, but you know stuff too. And I think we've got away from us accepting that we know things and we are allowed to know our bodies and know what's right for us. And some people don't, but I think that when we hand over our decision-making processes to the experts, that's when things can go wrong. And, and we've seen that. We've seen that the opioid crisis in the late 90s, early 2000s, everything was right. We had a drug prescribed. People said, the the druggist the 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 drug manufacturers told the doctors oxycontin is not uh, addictive and the doctors bought it and they started prescribing it our experts got it wrong and they created havoc in our community our experts created havoc now what does that mean do we never trust experts absolutely not but They've gotten it wrong before and they get it wrong a lot because there are a lot. Medicine is complex. Um, my, well, going into virology, which I really don't, again, don't want to delve too, in, too, too far, but even polio, the great polio, when my, my mom, the reason my mom gave her power over to doctors is because Scientists and doctors solved polio. They solved the polio problem, but that wasn't a clean um, solution. People died. Mistakes were made. And the question always is, do you want to be the, the risk and the loss of that risk? Are you willing to be the person that dies on the road to finding a solution? And that's a really heavy question. I don't think that we, when other people don't wanna take the vaccine or they don't want to take um, alternatives, whatever that may be, 
I think that we jump on them and, and we, we are not trying to put, their, put ourselves in their shoes and say, well, maybe they don't want to be the risk and who am I to ask them to take that risk? Who am I to ask them to take that risk? One last thing on science, my friend in 2000, 2003 had fibromyalgia and in, fibro, in 2003, fibromyalgia, doctors, they still don't know how to treat it, but they really didn't know how to treat it. And of course it was all in your head. It was all in the patient's head because the doctors can't not know how to do something. So it must just not be a problem. And that was kind of the thinking. And nowadays, they're, they're thinking about fibromyalgia as it is your, your brain sending and receiving false signals. So it is in your head, but it is medical, yet they still don't know how to treat it. And I was listening to a talk given by a physician, and she's saying most of the, the physicians don't like talking about fibromyalgia because they don't have a solution. Again, the experts want to have a solution. When getting off of that and into my personal expertise, right? Um, I have a, a master of fine arts in, in design and technology. So if you're using technology to help tell a story, I am arguably an expert, but I would never call myself an expert. When I was teaching at universities, they needed to be me to be the expert. So they called me the expert. And I think there's the, the linchpin. If someone needs you to be an expert, if someone needs your answer and they have your similar life view, they will view you as an expert. But if you are competition to them or if you don't follow the same life view, well, then you're easily not an expert. Another thing I've been dealing with um, homelessness for the past over 10 years, uh, just looking at what, what the causes are, how people get out, trying to, to change hearts and minds of people and been working on it in my ways. And in some people's minds, I am an expert, but if there's someone that, that works with the homeless daily, well, maybe they, maybe they wouldn't consider me an expert. And as I'm going into publicity world because of my books and because of my documentary and because of the other things I make, I'm looking into ultimately radio and television who have experts on their shows. And now we're getting into the territory of Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz and other financial experts. Well, how is he an expert? And you start to have to prove yourself by your success stories, by your academic background, or by someone else calling you an expert. Dr. Phil became renowned because Oprah said, this guy is awesome. And that's it. So again, warmth, competence, and public confidence. Yet some people you get into this, this problem where they don't have public confidence in you anymore. Uh, just one more thing about, well, how do we get into, let's say, non-science-based um, medicine? non-evidence-based medicine. So we're talking about homeopathy or we're talking about 
chiropractic, or we're talking about crystals, or, or whatever it may be, um, uh, uh, acupuncture. Well, I just got in a motorcycle accident early this month, and I've been dealing with insurance, trying to do it the right way, trying to get to the evidence-based medicine. And what it ends up being is 85% of me making calls to insurance and maybe 15% getting to see an evidence-based physician that may or may not do something for my health. So I have a new insight that why people would go to alternative medicines. They're far more approachable and far less detrimental to your health. The placebo effect is a real thing. And so if you're going after something because you believe in it, it could work. And if it's alternative, odds are it's not going to hurt you. If it's Western-based medicine, if it's a drug, you could get a stroke, you could get addicted to it, it could really hurt you. What's the difference between a, 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 a certified, board-certified physician or doctor prescribing you OxyContin and the President of the United States telling you to drink bleach? One has definitely more science background behind him, but both are absolutely wrong. <laughs> so I don't know. What's the balance between thalidomide babies and Gwyneth Paltrow's goop? And I, I think that's a personal answer. Uh, if Gwyneth Paltrow's products does something for you, gives you joy, gives you placebo healing, great. Thalidomide shrinks your baby's limbs. And when are you going to run, accidentally run into another thalidomide? All right, let's get away from, from science. There, other, there are other experts. There are experts in law. There are experts in finance. There are experts in every industry. And specifically in law, in trial law, there's a whole technique to debunking experts that are put up for trial. So we actually have experts that are experts at debunking experts. <laughs> and if you're good at it, no expert is good enough. Every expert is wrong. What do we do with that? I always think that someone has to have a plan and I have to see where they came up with their thinking for their plan. And then if I, if I will risk the point of them being the expert, let's run their plan to see if it works. Because arguing over it and not doing anything doesn't get us anywhere. At least if we have a plan and this person is arguably an expert, well, they can, we can run it out and learn from that. But we get into this fighting and fighting and fighting. So that is my talk about experts and expertise. What are your thoughts? Oh, by the way, I now have been in two pretty extreme motorcycle accidents. So to some people, I could be an expert 
in motorcycle accidents. I haven't studied them. I definitely have lived through what my body does to heal through them, which is a unique experience. So again, I'm an expert in one way, not necessarily in another. And how do we determine who gets to be our expert? Thanks. 